Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. on this kind of cloudy, little rainy day up here in Old Town Louisville. We're glad that you're with us here at the Mill Street House if you're here in person or wherever you are around the world joining us for our podcast. We're in a summer series entitled Fruition, where we're talking about how do we, how do we, cultivate, how do we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we divided it into three sections. Um, love, joy, turn away, love, joy, peace, and then we did a yeah, that'll make it a little bit easier. Love, joy, and peace. And then we did a, um, a praxis gathering. And now last week we looked at patience. Today we're going to be looking at kindness. Kindness is our focus. And we'll be in the book of Ruth, chapter 2. So we've been we've been springing from Galatians, the, the fruit of the Spirit. But we've been looking at each one of them as it's been displayed in Scripture. So we'll be in Ruth, chapter 2 today. We need to give you a little, probably a little bit of a, of a background, just a reminder um, of where we are. When the scripture tells us locations, particularly locations for stories, we should probably pay attention because the location is often important to understanding the scenario of what's happening there. And so in this case, in the book of Ruth in chapter 2, um, the book kind of centers around um, two different places, Israel. Uh, Judah, particularly, and a place called Moab. A place called Moab. All right, so let's go back through our our um, our biblical banks. And first of all, let's think. Okay, so on a map, if if you have the Mediterranean Sea, and then you have what we call like the Promised Land, Judah and Israel, then you've got the Jordan River, right, and the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, right. Where is Moab? on that map. Anybody have any ideas? I'll give you this hint. This is the, the nation that when Israel was trying to get directly to the promised land after the exodus, they went, uh-uh, you cannot pass through here. You're going to have to go around us. So that should give you a little bit of a clue. So north, south, east, west, south. South, southwest. East. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm trying to <laughs> Egypt, Israel. So, so you have the Dead Sea. You have the Sea of Galilee. So you have the Dead Sea. Then you have the Sea of Galilee. It's on the east bank, the east side of that. So it's it's basically directly east of everything that you hear about during the Gospel stories, right? That's Moab, a rocky territory um, on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. You would say directly across from the land of Judah. So maybe if you say southeast, then you pretty well have a good way of putting it, Dan. That's not bad. Now, Genesis 19 tells us that Lot lost his wife in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and his two daughters lost their fiancés. All right? Now, that's an important part of the story because the Moabites, the people of Moab, the Moabites are descendants of Lot's. Through his daughters. His younger daughter. But, well, one of, yes, so I'm sorry. The Moabites and the Ammonites, 
They're, they're all often put together. Yes, the Moabites, thank you. The Moabites are the descendants of Lot by the eldest, and Ammonites are by the youngest, if my, my memory is correct. So we have an entire nation built from the story of Lot. And as you can imagine, this is an incestual story, right? And so typically, uh, when things like that outside of God's design take place, what would you expect um, about the nation of Moab in terms of the kind of people they were, their worship, all of that? Anyone want to take a stab at that? Not godly? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Not godly. It would not be the place that a good, um, observant Jew would want to spend much time. All right? And yet it's an integral part of this story, okay? So we're, in, we're introduced in the first part of Ruth, chapter 1, to Elimelech and his family. Just to remind you, Elimelech, Elimelech is uh, married to Naomi. They have two sons, um, Mahon and Chilion, and they left. Bethlehem, Ruth 1 tells us, and settled in the land of Moab. So that should be the first thing that we pay attention. They're leaving Bethlehem, and they are working their way toward and moving to the land of Moab. All right? So while they're there, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow. So she's living with her two sons who are now taking care of her. And they had taken two Moabite wives. We know of one, Ruth. The other is Orpha. All right? And after a decade of living in Moab, all of the men, the husband to Naomi, the husbands to um, Orpha and Ruth, they all die. And so they are now widows. What do we know about widows living in the day and time here in latter part of Israel's history? What do we know? What's it like for widows in that world? No bueno. It's hard. Marginalized. Marginalized. Why marginalized? Because they don't have that husband and that family, I guess. Okay, good. Any other thoughts? They can't own anything. Yeah, they don't have property rights. What else? They're dependent on society. Exactly. So they're dependent first on their family. And then should that family not take care of them, then, like you said, society is all. Israel had a responsibility to take care of them. So naturally, when they don't have anything else, they leave Moab and they go back to the land of Judah. All right? And somewhere along the way, Naomi tries to send the girls back to Moab. She's like, you're a Moabite. You're not a Jew or Jewess. You're not a Jewess. Why are you coming? This isn't your family. You should just go find your family and let them take care of you, and I'll go back to my family. Well, Orpha said, all right, I'm going to do that. So she goes and stays with her Moabite family. But Ruth refuses to do so. Instead, she chooses to return to Bethlehem and, if you will, adopt the God of Israel. Remember, these are, these are places that have differing gods, right? And so she's not just leaving her land, her descendants, she's actually taking on an entirely new family and a new god. A new mindset. A whole new mindset. Well said. A brand new mindset. And that's where we pick up the story in Ruth 2. So what we're going to do is we're going to read, someone's going to read for us the entire chapter, Ruth chapter 2. It's not that long. It won't take too long. 
And then we're going to kind of look at it step by step because I think it is a picture for us of kindness, which is that caring, the idea of caring for one another. All right? The idea of caring for one another. So somebody, if you would, in the CEB, loudly so that our podcast can um, pick it up. Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a respected relative, a man of worth, through her husband from the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field so that I may glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I might find favor. Naomi replied to her, replied to her Go, my daughter. So she went, she arrived, and she gleaned in the field behind the harvesters. By chance, it happened to be the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He said to the harvesters, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Boaz said to his young man, the one who was overseeing the harvesters, To whom does this young woman belong? The young man who was overseeing the harvesters answered, She is a young Moabite woman, the one who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She said, Please let me glean so that I might gather up grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters. She arrived and has been on her feet from the morning until now, and has sat down only for only a moment. Boaz said to Ruth, Haven't you understood, my daughter? Don't go glean in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that they are harvesting, and go along after them. I've ordered the young men not to assault you. Whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from what the young men have filled. Then she bowed face to the ground and replied to him, How is it that I have found favor in your eyes that you notice me? I'm an immigrant. Boaz responded to her, Everything that you did for your mother-in-law after your husband's death has been reported fully to me. How you left behind your father, your mother, and the land of your birth, and came to a people who hadn't known beforehand. May the Lord reward you for your deed. May you receive a rich reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. She said, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, sir because you comforted me and because you've spoken kindly to your female servant, even though I'm not one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, eat some of the bread, and dip your piece in the vinegar. She sat along the harvesters, and he served roast grain to her. She ate, was satisfied, and had leftovers. Then she got up to glean. Boaz ordered his young men, let her glean between the bundles and don't humiliate her. Also, pull out some from the bales for her and leave them behind, behind for her to glean. And don't scold her. 
So she, <coughs> so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed what she had gleaned. It was about an ephah of barley. She picked it up and went into town. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over after eating her fill and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? May the, may the one who noticed you be blessed. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I worked today is Boaz. Naomi replied to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord who hasn't abandoned his faithfulness with the living or with the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is one of our close relatives. He's one of our leaders. Ruth the Moabite replied, Furthermore, he said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish all of my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women so that men don't assault you in another field. Thus she stayed with Boaz's young women, gleaning until the completion of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So chapter two opens up with this introduction of Boaz to the reader. Boaz is now a key uh, piece, new piece, a male entry into the story, and he's described as a man of worth from the family of Elimelech. Why do you think that the author um, begins this story, or the chapter, I shouldn't say the story, begins the chapter this way? Why is this kind of description important? And what makes it important? Or is it? Maybe it's not important. The, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew word for it is kayil, which is um, man of valor. Okay. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that he's like he, he might be really big and strong and stuff. He he is um, a man that uh, they would refer uh, like Psalms one, the blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the wicked, and, and all that all that kind of um, that that's what kind of man he was. He was a very upright. Um, he he would have been a great leader. Of the community. So, do you all see this as a contrast yeah. to what we had before? What, yeah. what, uh, he's, the only, he's on the opposite end of the social strata from Ruth and Naomi. Yeah, what would cause someone like um, Elimelech to leave Israel to go to a place like Moabite? What are we, to Moab, what are we supposed to read into the story there? Wasn't it a famine? It was a famine. Yeah, so you have you have this idea of poverty, potential poverty, or you know, having to go and find your way, kind of contrasted, right, with this man of means, who is also described, I love that, as a man of valor. In other words, he didn't come across it in the wrong way. He's obviously done things the right way and he's been blessed by God, right? And other reasons why he might have begun the chapter this way. Is there anything significant about Boaz being a relative of Elimelech? Well, that has to do with social, if standing, I mean, are we skipping ahead? Are we allowed to talk about like how he's technically 
could marry her. I mean, he's right. kind of no, 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 I think okay. that's, what we're, that's what we're hitting on. Yeah. Okay, okay. good. Okay, sorry. Well, okay. then that's my answer. It's kind of like shadow there that he's what? <laughs> he's family. family. He's the kinsman redeemer. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, so you so if you're a brother, you work your way down through the family, right? Because they have a social and familial obligation to take care of the widow of their family, right? And so it's actually also a, a godly law it's yes. in Leviticus. Yes. So it's part of the system that God established. And by the way, it's also a picture of what Christ did for us, right? As our kinsman redeemer, you know, as the bride who has rebelled and all of that good fun stuff, right? So there is some important significance here, right? So he is the kinsman redeemer. Not every gentleman loved this particular Levitical law. As if it made their life, because quite frankly, it does make your life more complicated. Well, that's, that's probably why God had to put it in. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. no one wants, well, I, I should say no one should willingly want to, but we watched Abram kind of willingly step into that situation, kind of like, all right, well, not really a wife per se, but, you know, kind of like, here, have another woman in your household, and let's see how that works out. Yeah, so there, it opens the door for all kinds of challenges, right, in terms of family and how the resources are deviate, you know, um, divided up and all of that, right? Anything else important from that? And I'm, I'm going to try to keep things short because I know I get tributary and, and confusing. Uh, this was right after or during the Passover time. Right. And the Passover time was when uh, the, the Jews would remember their deliverance from Egypt. God was their kinsman redeemer and in delivering them from Egypt and bringing them into a, a land that, uh, well, are trying to bring them <laughs> into a land where they could be prosperous and they could uh, do what he is going to be doing for Ruth, which is providing for her. And uh, so, so he's, he's probably come right from Jerusalem after the, the sacrifices and everything, this very fresh on his mind so that he can live out what God did for him and his relatives in you know, bringing, bringing him out of Egypt. True. So what, what she's doing, what Ruth is doing, and what she asked Naomi, notice she asked Naomi for permission, right? Can I go and do this? I mean, so it's obvious that they're aware of what's before them like they have the opportunity to glean they are they are um widows and so they know all of that and it's interesting that um naomi ruth asked naomi for permission i'm not sure why i think that's an interesting thing that maybe we could get too sidetracked on a rabbi trail there but we know that what ruth is doing is risky why well quick question mm -hmm. would naomi technically have the first right to be Redeemed. Redeemed. So is that her basically asking to go out of order? Uh, that's a good question. I think at this point in the story, we're still just talking about gleaning, like going out, permission to go to the field to glean. Now, I don't think at that point there was, in a minute we might see that there's a plan happening. But um, yeah, right now I just think it's, hey, is it okay if I go out and glean on our behalf? 
But I think you're on to something here that we'll get to in just one minute. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I mean, she's basically asking to become the provider, but also yes. take care of I think you're right. So this finding favor doesn't have anything to do yeah, with finding uh, someone to redeem. Mm -hmm. It's more like finding favor to get have kindness shown to them to right. give to, them. Just to survive. Right. Yeah. Okay. yeah, we're talking about survival here. But I thought it was interesting that in verses 3 and 4, it kind of gives the illusion, look at 3 and 4 again, that this is a chance meeting. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I like, uh -uh. How do you, why do you not think so based on what you're reading there? Are we supposed to believe that this is in that field by chance? Yeah, probably not. The why? Well, you look at the, the relationship because we know what happens next. Right. And the relationship and the way that Boaz treated Whoa. them and said, I'm going to tell the harvesters, you know, to let her do her thing, told the men, don't harass her. And to give her something. You know, and to actually yep. give her something, put off yep. some to the side mm -hmm. for her, and really took her under his wing. That was definitely a God thing, not just a chance. Yeah, and look at look at the actual phrasing of verses have, 3 and 4. Could she have uh, intentionally looked for a field that was owned by the family? That well, you would have. For sure you would have looked for the place where you would have naturally... I mean, no. I mean, you could glean anywhere. Technically, you could glean anywhere. But the fact that, that it's like, hey, we've got this thing. I've got this family member, the brother to my or to my dead husband, who is a man of honor. He's a man of valor. Maybe we could go glean in his field. I mean, it. It's like this illusion that there, you know, it's some sort of a plan. Obviously, it's being set up here as this is this is not by chance. Well, this is by design of the law and by God. What's even obvious? Boaz himself says it's been reported where you're like what you've done for your mother, so or mother-in-law. So clearly, yeah. there's stuff that was said that's not reported here, yeah, exactly. but isn't obvious to yeah. the reader. Yeah. In fact, in when did you want to say something? No. Okay, so in verses 5 through 9, right, Boaz and his servants are simply keeping Mosaic law, right, in allowing Ruth and others to glean in the field, right? So they're doing their responsibility, correct? <coughs> but unbeknownst to Ruth, at least in our text, right, she's being carefully observed as she gleans in the field. Why do you think, what do you think it was about her, perhaps, that would, of all the people potentially gleaning in the field, that Ruth is the one that gets the attention? Well, what are we supposed to read into the story? Anything? She stands out as a foreigner, um, for one, but he heard it, her, her reputation went before her in that she left her hometown, took care of her mother-in-law, all of that, he, it says that he knew all of that already. He knew who she was. Well, at this point, he still doesn't know that, right? Because no. it's the, the, the report from the, the manager has not yet reached oh, Boaz okay. in the story. It's true. That's, in the sto that's always the danger when we read the whole story. Mm -hmm. True. Because it's all in our mind, right? But remember, in the place here now, she's just out in the field gleaning. She's working very hard and very hard. And she's a new kid in town. 
And it says, please let me glean. So she even asked for permission to be there. And why would that be, why would she feel the need to do that? She's not, she's not, she's not a legal right. She doesn't have a legal right to be there. She's a Moabite, which is like, you say it like that. She's a Moabite. <laughs> That's like letting a Samaritan in your... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not as bad as being an Ammonite. Yeah, they're both pretty bad. Yeah, they're both pretty bad. So she's being observed. And then, as we saw in verses 6 and 7, Boaz's servant gives a report to Boaz as to who Ruth is and what she's been doing. Why do you think that the manager feels the need or the compulsion to A, follow her, and then B, report on it to the owner of the field? Do you think he does that for everyone that's gleaning in the field? If he knew she was a foreigner, he might not trust her and therefore keep a closer eye on her. Okay. From a male point of view, I think she was probably very attractive. I would agree, and she was hard work. Because I keep talking about the assault aspect. Yeah, this thing. You're, you're very tempting to, yeah, I got you. But so, how would you even know yeah. what she looked like with the way they dressed? They're pretty well covered up. Uh, good yeah, question. I, you know. I mean, again, we're doing semiotics here. We're kind of reading the story. We don't know exactly why, but we do know that at least, at the very least, the fact that she was a foreigner, a Moabite, gets their attention. And you might add that maybe she was attractive to look at, she was different, you know, she was from a different place, all of that's possible. Well, and in, in contrast, he's described as being respectable, meaning that he knows that other landowners are not, by bringing up the, the assault. Like, stay here, I will protect you. Right, because he knows, right. Because he's respectable, yeah. and whether that went anywhere or not, he knows that he would treat her well. And especially if she's a foreigner. Right. She's got even less protection. Right. So we talked about the risk to Ruth. Right? She's a woman, a foreigner, doesn't have any rights. She's out in the field gleaning. You could put two to two together and talk about, hey, you want a little bit more? Here, come on over behind this hay bale. You, you get where the drift is happening here, right? That's what's being implied, right? Am I wrong? No, that's what's being implied. You can be assaulted, right? But I think Boaz has is undergoing some risk here as well. How so? What's the potential risk to Boaz? He's let a foreigner in. Okay. People just looking down on him for basically caring for someone who is not quote unquote their own Right. I mean, he's doing the right thing, correct. But but not everybody is going to see this as, I mean, oh, oh. think about the modern world that we're in. Remember, in, in Scripture, the immigrant is always seen in a positive light. Always. And yet when the big C church as a whole deals with immigrants, it's not always a positive light, all right? So he's undergoing a risk here because he has someone from a neighboring country who does not have a great history with Israel. And he's open and you might even argue he's showing favoritism to him. 
to her. Mike, is part of the risk also the fact that he knows that she's a relative of his deceased brother and may have to redeem this woman and her and her mother-in-law, which complicates things with his own family? Is that part of the risk as well? Well, I mean, possibly, but if you would think about it, his responsibility as a kinsman redeemer is toward Ruth. Naomi. Naomi. Naomi, yeah. Not not the wife of Elimelech and Naomi's oh, sons. Little details in the story are important, right? So after hearing the report from his overseer, how does Boaz go above and beyond? We've talked about it a little bit. How does he go above and beyond to show kindness? He tells the workers to keep her safe, look out for her, but also to give her extra grain that she's not working. Right. And and water. And water. Yeah. He brought up specifically and water. the jugs. Yeah. And then come and sit and eat. Come yeah, come and sit at my table. Having a woman come and sit yeah. at a woman worker right. come and sit right. at his table. Come and sit here. You've got fresh water. My men are going to protect you from the ruffians. Right? He goes above again. It's like, so when you're picking, like, be intentionally bad at your job. <laughs> it's like, you know, you could keep the the mosaic law very, I mean, you basically said, if you're picking some grain and some falls on the ground, just don't pick it up. So, I mean, you could be like, on your workers, like, don't drop anything. Like, I'll give you an example when, when we're, um, there's a couple different ways to pick coffee. And so, when you're picking coffee, the, the thing that you want to do is, um, even though coffee is it, it, uh, it's connected directly to the long um, to the to the branch, it's it's like these little nodules that stick right to the branch, and they're in clusters. The temptation is to just like, and you've seen you can see people do this. They'll just put like a tarp down, and they'll just kind of like strip. They'll just strip it, and they'll like all sort it later. What you want to do is actually wait for the berry to be red, and you want to pick them like Juan Valdez style, just the best ones, but no matter how good you are, right, when they're ready to be when they're ready to be picked, you just have to touch the tree and they're going to fall on the ground, right? Now, we want to put that plastic down so that we don't lose the good ones. If you leave them on the ground, they're going to cause all kinds of problems with these little critters and so forth. But in their society, whatever fell on the ground, you were supposed to leave there. So he's doing above and beyond that. He's like, well, here's a whole, like, I mean, that ephoth, that's 30 pounds. That's a lot of grain. All right? So he goes above and beyond, right? Is there any risk there? Yes. It's over. That's your harvest. Yeah. That's your money. These are day laborers telling day laborers to not pick the amount that they're going to need to get to get paid for the day. Exactly. How many other Jewish women are walking his field not getting 30 pounds of grain? <laughs> not having somebody hand them a whole thing of, of wheat or whatever. Yeah. Well, so, go ahead. I was saying that it, you brought up a good point. When he, when she came and ate at the table, she had leftovers. So it wasn't even like the bare minimum to get somebody fed. Yeah. Foreshadowing. Jesus. Feeding. Hello. All right. So Ruth is astonished by the kindness because she's a foreigner. Um, what do we learn about Ruth's kindness and character through the way Boaz responded to her? 
In other words, what do we make of the fact that Boaz knew of all of the details of her relationship with Naomi? I mean, it feels kind of creeper, right? It's just general gossip though that yeah. happens okay. when a foreigner comes to town. Like that stuff <laughs> moves quick. <laughs> <laughs> Bethlehem's a tiny town. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, exactly. House of bread. So you can expect this is wheat being being grown in this region. So what do we learn about Ruth's character from the report and from Boaz's response to her? Well, the fact that she left her own family, her own place. Escorted Naomi back is a kindness in itself because Naomi wouldn't have been protected. She would have been traveling alone. That's never been. And he knows a lot of detail for some, we'll call it rich dude, to know about somebody gleaning in his field. What does that reveal to us about? We know a little bit now about Boaz's kindness, right? He's shown it by letting her be in the field, by gleaning way more, in fact, kind of having some at the expense of his workers himself, letting her have some, protecting her, letting her sit at the table. That's all actions that we would say are kind. Not required. So it's like this picture of kindness is beyond what is just required. Is that fair? Yeah. All right. Now, what do we make of the kind of person that she was. If the gossip is about her character. Like it, it sounds like everything that he's hearing is she's a hard worker. She gave up her her culture to come and be with a mother-in-law that she had no legal ties to. Now she's out here gleaning the field to feed not only her but her mother-in-law. And she asked. She asked to be there. So yeah. it, was, it wasn't even like she just. It's trying to sneak it or, or trying to sneak it. in or do anything. But there's an exceptional character, enough so that the community is talking about who is this Moabite woman who's such a hard worker and so committed to Naomi. And then she says, you know, she responds to him as, wow, I found favor in your eyes. Yeah. And he, you know, master and all that kind of stuff. He, there's no entitlement or, you know, I just do this. What else? What do we learn about the character of Ruth? Well, I mean, it gets me thinking about what the Romans, where Paul talks about, you know, the Gentiles who may not know the law, but in their, their spirit, they do the law. And when he describes Ruth, that seems to be what pops up, is that she's a, she's a Moabite, but in spirit, she's doing all the things which the law was supposed to direct you to do. Which becomes interesting, because in the next chapter, when when the game plan gets put into place between Naomi and Ruth about how we're going to capture this guy, it's, it's actually R-rated. You know, and this, this is another thing. I think there must have been something about Naomi that captured these two girls' hearts, mm -hmm. too. That they would want to come with her to a place where they probably didn't know the language, they didn't know the customs or anything like that, but yet there was something about Naomi that Ruth and, and uh, Orba, whatever her name was, uh, respected, Orba. Orba. Uh, respected and cherished so much that uh, they wanted to go with her. And, 
you know, there, there's just a real sweet love between the two of them. Well, even just coming into the family, um, moving into that land, <laughs> being a Jew, knowing the enmity between those two different nations, and then the sons picking wives, and then getting past the, the Jewish mother, yeah. the, the typical trope. <laughs> Clearly, the, that wasn't at play here. Yeah. So you get the sense, you, you, if you read into the story, we do some semiotics, you get the sense that Elimelech was probably not the best dude. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, because a dad who is, a, you know, a Jewish father would never, I mean, a good, righteous Jewish father, letting his sons marry Moabite women, like is, it's like you're, you're yeah. almost supposed to read into that, and then something's so you, broken in that relationship. Something's the broken. Fact that he had to leave the country to get back on his feet. There's all kinds of things that that the story. That's what the story is so beautiful because it allows us to then look and see different aspects. So, how does this entire passage, this chapter that we've read, including Ruth and Naomi's conversation, and the way that uh, Boaz dealt with her and his man dealt with her, how do all of those things together, how does it reveal God's kindness and care for those two women? So we've seen the kindness of Boaz. We've seen the kindness of Ruth. Obviously, the story is there also. It's not per chance, we said, right? So we would argue there's the kindness of God being shown here. Where is that on the display? Uh, he's looking after the least of these, right? I mean, you're supposed to look after the, the widows and the orphans and stuff like that. And this is a prime example of not only are they widows, they're widows of foreigners, you know, so even lower. I like what you said about um, kindness, about it's when you, when you do something more than what's required. And I think in the case of Boaz and Ruth, you're seeing two individuals here who, you know, in the case of Boaz, I mean, of course, there was the law for him to follow, but no one would have blamed him if he decided not to assist this Moabite woman. And in the case of Ruth, I mean, she's not a Jew, has no real commitment to Naomi after her husband died, and yet in her spirit she shows that kind of devotion towards the law that she, we would expect her to know. Right. So if Boaz had not responded in this way, He's still upright, right. not against, you know, he doesn't have anything to, to settle with the law or God. He, he was perfectly keeping everything, and he went above and beyond. Any other way that we see God's kindness and care for the two women? Well, just the fact that they made it back to Israel. Mm -hmm. um, that, that travel was not, that's not to be trifled with. Um, right. Especially for two women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. One who's old. Right. With no no male protection. That's, right. that's asking for all kinds of possible scenarios. And probably obvious that she's a widow because yeah. she probably would have been in some sort of mourning's garb. Yeah. Yeah. So it would have been like, oh, there's going to be no retaliation. Right. If, yeah. yeah, when you're a widow, you don't ever change out of the in, in um, Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. Once you're, and you can still see it today, like in Italy and other places, 
um, once they lose their husband, they often just dress in black and stay dressed in black. <laughs> Some of us were like, like, really, I have to do that? No, you don't have to do that. It cheaper on the wardrobe. Yeah, it is. You don't have to think about what you wear every day when you get up. I could bling it occasionally. Yeah, you know, put a little studs on them, whatever. But yeah, so I think that what Ruth is demonstrating, um, she's demonstrating her faith in God by taking a step forward, although it was unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Those are the two things. Unfamiliar and uncomfortable. I really want to zone in on that uncomfortable. So I don't think that God wants us to be comfortable. No. He wants us to be conformable. Mm -hmm. And to be conformable, conformable means that oftentimes our kindness has to be uncomfortable to us. Yeah, we don't like that so much, right? <laughs> what else do you have? <laughs> yeah, what else do you have? <laughs> so, you know, if you think about it, um, the, you know, the word for kindness in Greek is krestos, and part of its meaning is useful, so it makes clear that this idea of biblical kindness is a useful action, and as we've seen from the story, that may cause us to be uncomfortable at times, but the purpose of it is to be conformable for the fruition, for the fruit of the Spirit to be evidenced in us. So my final question is, so what are some specific acts of kindness? Um, might we offer to our family, our friends, our neighbors that maybe feel, may feel just a little bit uncomfortable to us? Or maybe just simple things that aren't so uncomfortable, I don't know. Um, what are simple acts of kindness look like in our society today, in our community? In our, in our society today, that's just actually interacting. Mm. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Because I see an awful lot of interaction on Twitter. I was talking about threads. In-person interaction versus uh, online. Yeah. I would second that in that, like, once you know someone or are close to someone, like, helping out with various life things is kind of not a big deal, but it's just that step of making space in your life to establish that level of connection with people that you're aware and available for them. That's one way to avoid having to do a whole lot of kindness is like just don't have any relationships, right? <laughs> I guess that is one way, but like you said, taking the time, who was it? Oh, Matthew Wright, our missionary friend, um, who taught us that in many cultures, it's people are more important than time. time. And we know that time is the new money in our society, right? We will pay for things to give ourselves time, time. time to do things, right? What else? I think also when we recognize that everything we have is a tool for loving others, um, if we get past the, yeah, I could do that, but it's just not smart to do this. Or like, you know, this is my boundary of like, my house is my space. <laughs> but sometimes God might say, you got a room, <laughs> I, need a I need people in that room. Or um, you've got an extra little bit of money and maybe that money is supposed to go somewhere else. Or um, you've got food and a neighbor needs food. Uh, it's when we recognize that everything we have is a ministry tool, and we stop holding our things tightly, it opens way more opportunities to love people. 
part of that comes from our from our misunderstanding of things are ours. Like, so we don't talk about offering here, right? Bringing, you know, we, we don't talk about like give, because that implies that we own. It's like, no, these things are, we're stewards of these things, right? And so when God asks us to share what's already his, right? So we're, it's interesting, we were, Chris and I were listening to a, a podcast, uh, Away With Words is one of my favorite podcasts because I'm just a word junkie. And one of the things they talk about is how words change. And and um, words, their, their container of meaning change. And I think it's important that we pay attention to the language that we use because it informs how we act. So if we think of stuff as ours, like if Boaz had thought, this stuff is mine. you respond in a completely different way than this is something that God has blessed me with and here's an opportunity for me then to, it, it informs the way that we naturally act. So the way we think about things, we say the same thing about membership. Membership versus partnership. Why do we say partners? Because partners bring something to the table. When you're not here and you get a call from me or an email and saying, hey, I missed you, it's not like, oh, you naughty person, you didn't come to church, it's we missed your voice in your contribution, whereas membership just says, well, I'll show up when I want to because I pay my dues, I write my tithe check, and I'm going to show up whenever, right? So, but words are important, right? Anything else? I think it's interesting because we brought up the, that that he basically added her into the fold. It doesn't talk about that the other workers were unhappy that she was there, that she yeah. was taking from them. Like, there was no negativity there. He just added. He just added more to the fold, and it wasn't in, like, he didn't take anything away from anybody else right. to do so. Right. He just gave more. It doesn't say, like, well, he shortchanged them to give her. Right? Yeah. Any other thoughts? I think uh, kindness can be shown. It can be very difficult, especially if you're with a group of friends that tend to think a certain way and someone is outcast or pushed out because they think differently or they're different than you are. For you to step outside of your friends and walk beside them, that can be extremely difficult. Yeah. And that's, and that's a show of real kindness to that individual. I think an essential part of kindness is being able to receive it. And I think that's harder. Can be. Like we're depriving other people of opportunities to be kind if we're unwilling to ask or receive help. Remember when Reverend Ray and Chris came to us? Because we were we were so poor when we first started in ministry. We were poorer than church mites. And people would come and offer us things and part of me was just like no. And Ron just, he like pulled me inside into the room and he was like, will you stop getting in the way of somebody's blessing? You're being rude. <laughs> and I was like, what? He was like, no, that's their spiritual, that's part of their spiritual gifting, right? They want to give, they want to help. And when you say no, you're just being, well, he used the word I won't do. A double servants. You're being a, a double servants. I think that sometimes you're unwilling to accept that kindness because you feel like there's going to be strings attached or there's going to be that you're indebted to that. And I, I think when I think about it, my grandmother always told me when someone blesses you, just say thank you. Yeah, that's all you get. No other, no other response. Well, that was the, the trip to Uganda. We were getting gifts 
everywhere we went, it was like, you really don't need to do that. And I had to just shut up. Yeah. And it was that, it's, it's like, that's tough. Though. Right. It was that's really bad. Like, you cannot give us this chicken. This is like, this is your chicken. <laughs> this is a week's worth of food for you. Yeah. Like, at, at, at least. So, yeah. but just shutting up and letting him be a blessing to us. I had to do that twice in this last trip, even with my wife. She was like, there's just too much. This is such a waste. Almost like the words of, this is such a waste. I'm like, well, yeah, for us. I mean, literally, they go out a pile at uh, yeah. the school at, uh, at uh, <coughs> get the end of it. Anyway, it's this big and it's that high of avocados and watermelons and, I mean, uh, everything. And, like, it filled the back of, it would fill the back of a boot, like, or a trunk. Wow. Like literally would have filled it. Bananas, everything. <laughs> and there's like four of us. Boxes of but but immediately my thought is we have an entire village. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. literally started yeah. bringing it to all of the widows. Everyone in the village, yeah. it doesn't grow that thing. Yeah. It's like, here's some avocados. Here's some mangoes. And everybody, I mean, it was just like, um, so I actually had to say to both David and Chris, like, just let them bring it. Let them bring it. It's because that's what they want to do. It's their way of showing kindness to us and blessing us and being thankful to us. And that's an interesting piece that I would not have gotten from the story, which is how difficult it is for us to receive kindness. But it also shows, too, that when someone is blessing you, it gives you the opportunity with the overflow yeah. to bless someone else. And so where it may be like it's too much for me, it's too much for me, but it's meant for me to show kindness mm -hmm. to someone else who may not have it. That would be the way you, that would be one way to preach this, right? You get to the end and she has 30 pounds to share with way more than she needs for her family that she can share with everybody else. That would preach. Good. All right. Excellent. Well, we close each of our gatherings in the same way here at the table. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.